And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Well, let me ask you, have you ever thanked God that you weren't around when the Bible was written so that your failures wouldn't be recorded for all people of all time to read about? Well, Peter uh, was there, <laughs> and uh, everyone knows about his colossal failure. We're not going to see that failure today, but it's kind of a, it's just kind of a, a pre-failure uh, talk, if you will. Now, like Peter, we have all failed the Lord, even if our failures are not as widely known. And when you fail the Lord, whether it's a colossal failure like Peter's or even a lesser failure, you tend to feel guilty embarrassed, maybe even depressed. Uh, if it's a bad fall, you may wonder if God will ever use you again in his service. Now, thank God that the Bible offers hope for those who have failed God. It doesn't leave us without a way out. Also, thank God that the Bible paints its heroes warts and all. Uh, it doesn't airbrush their blemishes from the record. It lets us see them as men and women like us who struggle against some of the same weaknesses and temptations that we deal with, but who recovered from their sins and failures by God's abundant grace. Now, I don't know how to rank failures, but I'm pretty sure Peter's has to be one of the worst. I mean, think about it. To be the leader among the apostles, to boast that he would go to prison and even to death with Jesus, and then to deny that he even knew Jesus. That's not your average, everyday sort of failure, is it? Well, the fact that the Lord restored Peter and used him on the day of Pentecost and thereafter, it shows us his amazing grace, and it gives us hope when we fail. So when we fail the Lord, his grace points the way back to give us hope. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the example of Peter and many others in Scripture who show us, Lord, that yes, uh, we fail and sometimes we fail miserably, but you are there for us. You do not abandon us. And God, you have forgiven us of our sins and you pick us up and, and, and set us on the right path again. So help us to see that, to understand it this morning. Father, use your word to conform us into the image of your son. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, like Peter, number one, we all have failed. Okay, does anybody in here want to say, well, I've never failed? I thought about this week. Uh, I've never failed, so I was just kind of making this up as I went along, but I knew that wouldn't fly too good. No, I've had plenty of failures. Let's take a look at what's behind Peter's failure. First, a, a spiritual, uh, behind spiritual failure is a spiritual reality. Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded permission. Now, the verb means simply to uh, obtain by asking. And he's asked, asked to sift Peter like wheat. Now, first of all, this reveals Christ's supernatural knowledge of events that occurred before the throne of God. It reminds me of Job. Remember Job went up to, with the sons of God in heaven and he has this little conversation with God. Uh, he, he's trying to show that Job only followed God because of the blessings, because of the benefits, but he would deny God if God would take those benefits away. So he gave uh, Satan permission Okay, to do what he did to Job. Now, in our passage today, to sift like wheat, that picture's grain running through a sieve. 
where, where the head of grain is literally taken apart. Satan wanted to tear Peter apart and leave him in pieces. Now, somewhat surprisingly, God granted Satan's request. We tend to think that Jesus prayed for him and that that, that that didn't happen. No, just the opposite. In his inscrutable purposes, God uses Satan, who thinks that he's going to achieve his evil purpose, but of course, God overrules him and turns it for his greater purpose of good. Uh, Satan is on a leash, just like with Job, and he can go only so far. Now, note that uh, Satan goes specifically after those who are in spiritual leadership. The pronoun you there in, first, in, 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 in verse 31, uh, Satan has asked permission to sift you. It's in the plural. Uh, this is talking about Satan asking permission to sift all of the apostles. But Peter, as the leader among the disciples there, is especially singled out. He would fail in the most dramatic way. He's the one that we have the conversations where, yes, three times he denies even knowing Christ. But God is going to use that failure after he is recovered to strengthen his brothers, his disciples, who also failed. How many stayed with Jesus on the night of his crucifixion? None. They all fled. Now, the point is, behind the scenes, there is an evil spiritual enemy, a Satan, and he's bent on our destruction. Oftentimes, we forget about him or fail to see him. You got to remember, he brought sin into our world by tempting Eve there in the garden. Peter tells us he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world, a murderer, a liar, and the father of lies. All that comes straight out of Jesus' mouth. In a parable, he said that this wicked being snatches the seed of the gospel from hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Paul calls him the God of this world who has blinded the eyes, blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So he is a powerful, cunning enemy. That's why the Apostle Paul instructs us to, be, to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the subtle but powerful schemes of this wicked enemy of ours. So we're foolish and we're in danger of failing if we forget about our enemy. He's there and he's real. Well, B, spiritual, behind spiritual failure is blindness to our own weakness and the Lord's warnings of danger. Peter was foolishly confident in his own commitment to the Lord, so much so that he contradicted Jesus' own words. Now, we often flatter, flatter ourselves thinking, well, others may fail, but not me. I'm strong. Yeah. It's interesting that verse 34 is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus calls Peter, Peter. Everywhere else she calls him Simon because that was his given name, Simon. Simon Bar-Jonas, Simon, son of Jonas, son of John, son of John. So that's, that's his normal name, but he gave him a new name when he made the confession. Remember he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the li uh, living God. And he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will, that's what Peter means. Upon this rock, I will build my uh, church. So this is the first time, though, that he uses that name, Peter. The Lord's kind of gently saying, Peter, you are a rock only when you rely on me, not when you rely on yourself. 
You think that you're a rock in yourself, but Peter, you are about to fall. You are about to fail. Now, I believe that the disciples' blindness to their own weakness and to the spiritual danger that lurked just ahead is the point of these difficult verses in verses 35 through 38. Jesus is telling them that there's a new direction just ahead in light of his impending death and his departure. That's something that they, they had heard. He had told them three times, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. They, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They didn't know that it was coming. And in fact, he was going to leave them and be gone. He begins by reminding them of the time when he had sent them out without any provisions. Do you remember? Two by two to witness. And, but they lacked nothing. He had provided everything for them that they needed. They had seen great spiritual victories. And they came back rejoicing that even the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. So the Lord had kind of smoothed out this first experience to give them some confidence in their beginning attempts at ministry. But now Jesus is warning them that the battle is to heat up in ways that they have never experienced before. They're going to encounter situations where God would not miraculously provide, and so they needed to make adequate provisions in advance. Now, Jesus being numbered among the transgressors, that meant a new level of spiritual conflict, something they hadn't seen. This hour and the power of darkness, it belonged to the enemy. And the disciples needed to be ready, and as we see, they weren't. So Jesus told the disciples to sell their robe and buy a sword. And when they produced two swords, they were kind of proud of themselves. Well, we have two swords. He said, it is enough. What does all that mean? In light of Jesus' command to Peter to actually put up your sword when he used it in the garden, he said, eh, put that thing away. And the fact that, that Jesus uh, just had total non-resistance to the Jewish guards who arrested him, it should be kind of easy, uh, obvious that Jesus was speaking symbolically, not literally, when he told them to buy swords. He was referring to the swords as a symbol of preparation for the intense spiritual conflict that was just ahead. When the disciples took Jesus literally and produced two swords, and he replied, it is enough, basically he was dismissing the subject in light of their continuing spiritual darkness. It's like, okay, that's enough of that. You don't understand. You just don't get it. Now, there's one more factor in our text that shows that the disciples were spiritually blind and dull. They didn't understand that Isaiah 53, 12, which Jesus partially, partially quotes here, that it applied to him. It reads, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus tells them that it referred to him and now would be fulfilled. Most Jews understood that particular scripture as applying to the nation, not to the Messiah. They didn't have a concept of a suffering servant Messiah. They thought that an exalted, powerful Messiah would deliver a suffering nation. Well, as the risen Lord tells those two men on the road to Emmaus, right? He, he's risen from the grave and he bumps into them. He also repeats this to the apostles. He tells them that Christ first had to suffer these things and then enter into his glory. Now, the application for us is, 
often behind our spiritual failure is our blindness to our own weakness and to the warnings of God. We just don't see the situation from God's perspective. That, that would be an incredible thing, to have the eyes of God and see things as He, he does. If we, if we did, I can see some ways to be beneficial, but you know what? The Bible tells us we're to live by faith and not by sight. He has the sight, <laughs> so we trust Him. We live by faith. Well, like the disciples, we often read scriptures with our own bias, missing what God intended for us to see. I'll give you an example. I've seen Christians who read Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the Hall of Faith, right? Where the writer catalogs all these great examples of faith in, in the Old Testament. And it talks of all the glorious deliverances that God accomplished through his people, the ones who trusted him. But they kind of block out the last half of the chapter of Hebrews 11. That describes how believers were mocked, scourged, imprisoned, and sawn in two. So when they experience suffering, rather than deliverance, they think that God has failed them, that something has gone wrong. And the truth is they simply did not understand the fullness of Scripture. So behind spiritual failure is a spiritual enemy, that's Satan. And there is blindness from ourselves to our own weaknesses and the dangers that lie ahead. We'll see spiritual failure or behind spiritual failure is our own slowness to grasp the spiritual significance of events before they hit. The disciples didn't realize that they were on the brink of the greatest spiritual conflict in history. It's when the Son of God will be delivered into the hands of sinners. It doesn't get any worse than that. If they had known what Jesus was telling them, that, that this hour and the power of darkness belonged to the enemy, they probably would have stayed awake and prayed with Jesus there in the garden. Peter wouldn't have foolishly drawn his sword loft, lopped off that servant's ear. They were thinking in physical and human terms when they needed to be thinking in spiritual and supernatural terms. Now, when we fail the Lord, we're usually operating on the human plane only. We fail to see this cosmic battle uh, in the heavenlies. We forget that we're supposed to glorify God before the principalities and powers. We're just thinking about our own needs, our own perspective. We forget that God has a bigger plan and he wants to use this temptation in our lives as a victory for his cause. We miss the spiritual significance of events until it is simply too late. That's what happened to the disciples. Well, D, behind spiritual failure is a failure of faith. The Lord tells Peter that he had prayed with him so that his faith may not fail. And when he prayed that, he means so that it would not fail utterly beyond recovery. Truth is, his faith did fail. He denied knowing Christ. But it didn't fail completely, and that's because, as Jesus tells them, of the Lord's intercession. But when Satan attacks, he always attacks faith. Faith is what links us to Christ and to the, the blessings of our salvation. If the enemy can sever our faith, then he's cut the connection uh, by which we lay hold of God's power and God's grace. The writer of Hebrews also tells us without faith, it is impossible to please God. So the, 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 the enemy, 
he invariably goes for the juggler vein of our faith. That's why Paul tells us in spiritual conflict to take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles or darts of the evil one. We do it by faith. That's why later Peter instructs us to resist the devil. Do you know how he tells us to resist him? Firm in faith. If our faith is in the living Lord, we will not fail because he will not fail us. Invariably, behind spiritual failure is a failure of faith on our part. Well, that's enough of the analysis of the problem. Just to summarize, we fail because we do not reckon with this powerful spiritual enemy, the devil. We kind of forget he's there sometimes. We are often blind to our weaknesses and to danger, so we ignore the Lord's warnings. We fail to grasp the spiritual significance events of events uh, that we face, and ultimately we falter in our faith. Now I want to focus on the hope that the Lord gives us through His grace. And that's really the only hope we have. So second, when we fail the Lord, His grace points the way back and it gives us hope. Just, how many of y'all have ever gone diamond shopping? You know, at some point. What, what do they put the diamonds on? Huh? Yeah, but the light's on top, but what's underneath it? Black velvet right the diamond sparkles more brilliantly when it's set on that background of uh, of black jet black velvet well guess what God's grace shines more brilliantly in your life when it's set against the blackness of our sin his grace shines through our text in several different ways a Christ's gracious prayers for us are the ultimate reason for our perseverance It's obvious that Peter didn't really have a clue about what was going on concerning him in the spiritual realm. He didn't know that Satan had demanded permission to sift him like wheat or that Christ had already prayed for him so that his his faith would not uh, finally fail. He erroneously thought that he could stand against the powerful enemy in his own resolve. It's also obvious that the reason that Peter would recover and persevere in his service for the Lord was, was because of Christ's prayers for Peter, not because of Peter's resolve to follow the Lord. A couple of verses here that are just so encouraging that you need, you need to get hold of. Romans 8.34, Paul tells us this, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 7.25, tells us that since Christ abides forever as our great high priest, he is able to save forever or completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's huge, y'all. That means that right now, Christ is praying. If you're a child of his, Christ is praying for you right now. What a great assurance that we're not only saved by Christ's death on the cross in our behalf, but that we are also being saved, present tense, by his present ministry of intercession for us. 
Paul assures us in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even if you have failed the Lord big time, if you know that he has saved you by his grace, you can also know that he uh, will restore you and keep you by that same grace. Part of the study that I'm sure that they did just a couple months ago, they were talking about grace and the gospel. And the truth is, yes, we are saved by the gospel. Paul tells us it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But we are sustained by grace. Without that grace of God that we find in the grace of the gospel, we'd fall flat on our faces continually. But by his grace, we don't do that. Yeah, we still fall. Peter fell later, didn't he? Not just this one time. Remember, he, he went out and weep, wept bitterly. His heart was broken because he had denied Jesus, who just a few hours at this point in our passage today had said, hey, I'm, I'm good. I'm ready, to, I'm ready to go to the cross with you. I'm ready to go to prison with you. Whatever you need, Lord, I'm here. And he says, see ya. I'm out of here. It breaks his heart. Well, we know, this is Peter, Peter, Peter gets in trouble. <laughs> and after he's been restored, after he has rest restored and strengthened his brothers, later in his ministry, he falls again. And Paul has to confront him to his face. Does that sound familiar? Have any of y'all ever fallen twice? Yeah. But he's always there for us. Well, B, our repentance turns us away from sin and back to the Lord's grace. Now, the Lord tells Peter that he will turn again. Turning away from our sin and back to God, that's the main idea of repentance. That's what it means. In Acts 3.19, Peter preaches, Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. How many of you have ever gone before the Lord and just had your heart broken and you confess your sin to Him? And when you get up out of that prayer, you just feel like a newborn baby. That's the times of refreshing that, that Peter is talking about. That's what happens when you repent. In Acts 26, 18, Paul describes his commission from God to go to the Gentiles and this is God speaking. Paul is telling somebody, but he's speaking for God. This is what God told Paul that he's to do. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Okay, that, you see that? Turn from darkness to light. And from the domain of Satan to God. Satan darkness, God light. In order that we may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now, sometimes when we've sinned, we feel that we simply can't go back to God again. But when Christ died on the cross for our sins, He just didn't die for the little ones. He died for them all, big and little alike. Now, Paul makes quite clear in, in Romans chapter 6 that we should never abuse God's grace by sinning. Paul has just talked in chapter 5 about the grace of God and how it covers our sin. And he says, begins chapter 6, What then? Shall we continue in sin that God's grace may abound? In other words, if God's grace is shown, shown more clearly by us sinning, shouldn't we just continue in sin? And Paul says, 
May it never be. It's the strongest negatory language we have in the Greek. Ain't no way. No, that's not why he saved us. He didn't save us so we could keep sinning. He saved us so we'd have the ability not to sin. Now, we're never going to be perfect. All right? But that is, that is our lot. Well, yeah, he died for all of our sins. And we should never abuse God's grace by sinning. But when we do sin, Scripture assures us that we have Christ as our advocate with the Father. He is praying for us. We'll see, the Lord's, grace, the Lord's graciously restoring us to service, that keeps us walking in brokenness, in humility, and in trust. I don't know why the Lord didn't pray that Simon or Peter simply would be just be kept from sin. But he didn't. He prayed that having sinned, his faith would not permanently fail. Here's one thing I do know. God often uses failure to teach us things that we cannot learn in any other way. What that actually means is that many times failure is good for us when we learn from it. By nature, we are all too confident in our own flesh. It's only when we fail, when we fall, that we begin to realize just how weak we really are. And that kind of drives us to trust more fully in the Lord's strength. Now, the Lord here assigns Peter a ministry after he is restored to strengthen his brothers. Like I said, how many, how many fled that night at the, at, you know, when they came to arrest Jesus? All of them did. So I'm sure they all, to some degree, felt what Peter was feeling. And his job was now to strengthen them. He could do that ministry, having fallen, much more tenderly, without pride, than he would have been able to do before he fell. In fact, before we fail, we often look on, uh, down on others who fail, thinking that we somehow have it more together than they do. But God actually uses our failures to make us more sympathetic, to make us more compassionate. You, you go, yep, I've been there. I, I've walked down that road. I know exactly what you're going through. If you've never done it, it's kind of easy to be condescending and come at the attitude, yeah, you should have never done that. Rather than saying, brother, I may have done ex not ex exactly what you've done, but I have failed Christ. And guess what? He's still there. Paul instructs us when we seek to restore others that we've got to look to ourselves first lest we too be tempted. It's when we proudly think that we will not fall that we're most in danger of falling. Well, D, the fact that Christ graciously, graciously chose us even though he knew that we would fail, <laughs> that should move us to repent. The Lord chose Peter knowing full well how Peter would deny him. Now here, Christ reveals in detail that before the cock crowed, Peter would deny three times that he knew Jesus. And guess what? He still chose him. What was true of Peter is true of every believer. The Lord chose you knowing every sin you would ever commit. His amazing grace should move us to repent and turn back to him when we fail. Well, E, the unusual grace that Christ shows after we repent, that should draw us closer to God. Jesus uh, made a special point to single out Peter after the resurrection and to restore him to service. 
on that first resurrection Sunday, when the men from Emmaus returned to Jerusalem to tell them of their encounter with the risen Lord, the eleven said back to them, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon, to Peter. At the tomb, the angel told the surprised women, he is risen, he is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going before you into Galilee, therefore, or there you will see him just as he said to you. Those wonderful extra words, and Peter, they show us the unusual grace of God in restoring the repentant Peter. Go and tell the disciples, that was enough, that was sufficient, that included Peter. But knowing Peter's colossal failure, the Lord instructed the angel to add, and Peter. You see, when we fail the Lord and then repent, he just keeps piling on his grace to reassure us of his forgiveness. Well, my last point here is the starting point to experience God's grace is to trust in Christ as your sin bearer. Now, Jesus cites Isaiah 53, 12 as finding fulfillment in himself. He says he was numbered among the transgressors. Now, that prophecy refers, <clears throat> excuse me, to his crucifixion between the two thieves. So he was numbered with the transgressors. But it points to more. On the cross, Jesus Christ became our substitute, bearing the penalty that we deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, And he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Going back to Isaiah 53, verse 6. Isaiah writes, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. But you must personally apply Christ's shed blood to your sins by faith. If you've not trusted in Christ, even if you think you're a pretty good person, the Bible says that you're in Satan's domain of darkness. But God offers his free and abundant grace to every sinner. If you will trust in Jesus to save you from God's judgment, you will experience his abundant grace and the forgiveness of all of your sins. Now, I believe that one of the main things that keeps us from receiving God's grace in Christ is simply our pride. We think, yes, I failed God, but it wasn't all that bad. Besides, I'm basically a good person. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you want God's grace, you've got to humble yourself and come as a needy sinner. That's the only way that God will receive you. In the highlands of Scotland, uh, sheep occasionally wander off among the rocky crags, and they get themselves... Uh, just trapped on dangerous ledges. Uh, they're walking along and they leap down to a ledge to get some of the grass that's there and they eat it and when it's gone, they want to go back up but she can't climb. And so they just stand there. A shepherd is going to allow this helpless animal to remain there for days until it becomes so weak that it can't even stand. Finally, he ties a rope around himself. He goes over the ledge to rescue this straying sheep. And you ask, why doesn't the shepherd go down right away? Well, the answer is that the sheep are so foolish 
that they would just dash right off the edge of the ledge and be killed if the shepherd didn't wait until their strength was nearly gone. Now, you may be like that straying sheep. You've allowed sin to entice you into a situation where you're trapped and unable to find your way out. Maybe you've even called out to God, but He doesn't seem to be answering. Well, the reason is He knows that you are still too strong in yourself. But when you come to the end of yourself and recognize that you can't do anything to save yourself, if at that point you call out to Jesus, guess what? He will listen. He will hear you. He will save you. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Confess your sin and your faults to Him. Cry out to Him to save you from your sins. You will experience His just abundant grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we're, we're just encouraged by Your Word. Father, we know what happened to Peter. Uh, and Peter's not the only one. My goodness, Scripture is filled with examples. Like I said, uh, all of God's people had warts. And the Bible doesn't hide them, hide them from us. Uh, just to remind us that, yes, they were people too, and we have warts, and we fail in our service to you. And God, you forgive us, you restore us, and you continue to use us. That is all of grace. We thank you so much for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.